If there is a guy whose lifetime has been spent serving the country and serving the community, it's Dexter Pitts. And what you're going to hear in this episode is he has been in the middle and in the thick of it in Iraq, in combat, and in the United States, in a community that's being torn apart by violence and by race riots. And he stood up and spoke out about who he is and what he stands for. By the time you get to this episode, I think you're going to have as much respect for Dexter Pitts as I do in this episode of Unbeatable. These stories of triumph over adversity will help you handle your toughest days in life and become unbeatable. This episode is brought to you by my friends at the Solomon Foundation. They have more than 7,000 investors and they're helping the local church grow. And if you want to partner with the Solomon Foundation, you'll get an excellent return while you're making an eternal impact. The best way to find those guys is just go to thesolomonfoundation.org. Now here's my interview with Dexter Pitts. Dexter, thank you for being willing to be a guest on Unbeatable with me today. I've been looking forward to this with you. Mr. Strucker, I appreciate you having me, sir. Thank you so much. Can't tell you how long I've been waiting to actually talk to you and meet you. This is awesome. Oh, man. I I just said a second ago, right before we hit the record button, and we're going to have some fun today because I feel the same way about you after hearing about your story and all that you've done, not just for our country, but for your community. Man, we're going to have some fun on this episode. I'm ready. I'm ready. Let's get into it. Um, Hey, I just got back uh, last week from, we didn't talk about this, you're not even aware of this, but last week I was up in New York, I made a quick trip up to Fort Drum, New York, and believe it or not, I was with the Golden Dragons for one morning while a friend of mine, Kenny Thomas and I presented a official replica of the Black Hawk Down print. And I told those guys up there, guys and gals up there, how impressed I was with the warriors from this army battalion way back in Somalia and how impressed I am with what they continue to do today. You would get a kick out of that because you used to be in the 214 battalion. You used to be a golden dragon yourself, right? Yes, sir. Alpha Company 214. Yeah. Very proud. Um, Tell me... Tell everybody a little bit about why you ended up in the Army, what it was that led you to the U.S. Army, and why the infantry, um, you know, what was going on in your life that prompted you to go to an Army recruiter and say, I think I'm ready to join up. No, it's just like every other young kid from my generation that fought in the war on terror. Everybody remembers 9-11. You know, I grew up in the military. I was born in Fort Knox. My father was a tanker. You know, so for me... It was, mm-hmm. I'm never joining the military. I'm not joining the army. I don't want nothing to do with the military. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm around <laughs> these guys every day growing up, and I don't want anything to do with yeah, it. I keep, yep. I keep making friends and having to move. And so my mind, I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. But that all changed on the morning of September 11th, 2001. And I remember just sitting and watching the towers fall like, man, like we're under attack. Like, this is, this is horrible. Like, I got to do yeah. something. And I was still in high school. I think I was in my, like my, I think it was my sophomore year. And then yeah. it was almost a combination of, it's just this crazy combination. So 9-11 happened. And then right after 9-11, Black Hawk Down comes out. And I remember sitting uh-huh. in the movie theater looking at these guys on screen, your character. And all, I'm just like, man, I want to be a ranger. I want to be in the army. 
I want to go and fight. I want to be on the front line. And so I yeah. then, you know, I remember going talking to a recruiter and I dared not tell my mother that, hey, I'm going to join the army and I'm going to join the infantry and carry a gun and go because fight people. Because she's been married to a career soldier and I can, you and I both know how that conversation oh is going to yeah. start. I, jo I joined the delayed entry program and did not tell her right away because I didn't have to sign anything. So did I. <laughs> yep. Yeah, I was like, I'll, I'll do that. You know, I'll let her know when it's time. You know, so man, next thing you know, uh, they give me these duty stations and I'm like, man, I want to be a ranger. And they was like, well, had, hate to tell you, buddy, you didn't score great on your ASVAB. <laughs> Uh -huh. <laughs> so you're not going to be a ranger. I was like, man, well, what, what? I just want the infantry then. That's fine. And they gave me a list of places and they were like, hey, if you want to fight, 10th Mountain Division is where you want to go. Those boys are yep. always on the go. And I was like, those are the guys from Black Hawk Down that went in to get the rangers out. Yep. I was like, sign me up. And the next thing you know, I'm in boot camp. And the biggest regret I have in boot camp, my, our, my drill sergeant, Drill Sergeant O'Neill was a ranger. And I had the uh -huh. opportunity in boot camp where they came, they're like, hey, we're taking guys to the RIP program. Yeah. This is your chance. Right. Do you want to be a ranger or not? And me and my girlfriend at the time, we were talking about getting married. And I was like, man, I got to go get married. Yeah. I remember my drill sergeant saying, either you want it or you don't, man. This is a once in a lifetime opportunity. The biggest regret of my life is I passed up that opportunity to go to ranger school because I, ne I don't know what could have happened. I don't know. I mean, yeah. I, I tell people right. all the time, right? I wouldn't have quit ranger school, but at the same time, I probably wouldn't have made the standard, brother, because I could not. Well, run. <laughs> we'll see. You know, it's it's almost impossible to say what would have yeah. happened to, to guys and gals that never got a chance to go to ranger school just because the, the, the dropout rate is so outrageously high. I wouldn't have been able to keep up with y'all running. Um, I can promise you that. <laughs> but I'll just tell you this. Based on your life and what you've done since you joined the military, man, I am absolutely convinced that if you got the shot, you would have made it. Man, um, I, I, that's one thing I tell people. I don't I don't quit. I, yeah. I am tenacious as I all get out. And that don't quit attitude is the reason why this podcast exists. It makes all of the difference in the world. Um, hey, did you know that you and I uh, were in Radcliffe and Elizabethtown, Kentucky at the same time? Really? Yeah. Um, before I, so right after I left the Army's Ranger Regiment as a sergeant, I went away. I did a, uh, some school while I was still on active duty, and I went away to go uh, pursue an education a seminary education, and I needed a job that would get me close to a theological school. So I asked the Army to send me to the University of Louisville in Kentucky, really? and um, I started off, I, I worked there day in and day out, but I began by living in on Fort Knox and then quickly moved to a little house down a country road, down a dirt road, in Elizabethtown, Kentucky, and I made the drive every day, 62 miles one way from my uh, home to the office and 62 miles back. But I love living in that part of Kentucky. Man, it's so beautiful It's a unique, there. unique place. It really is. Yeah. So for the listener who doesn't have any idea about how beautiful this part of the United States is, we need to help them understand how to properly say this word because most people, when they see the name, they inevitably pronounce it Louisville. Help them out, man. That is not at all how the name is pronounced. Tell them how to pronounce the name correctly. If you're watching you? the video podcast, watch my lips. If you're listening to the show, an audio listen. Louisville. Louisville. That's right. It is. 
Not Louisville. We basically slur all of the consonants and just focus on the vowels there. We just call it Louisville. Um, and anybody who's from there knows you're from there. And if you're not from there, it's pretty easy to find out you're not from there by the way you pronounce the name. Yeah, Louisville. I'm like, yeah, no, that ain't where I'm from. <laughs> That's right. We're going to talk a little bit about your time while you were with the Metro PD there in just a few. But I want to say to you, man, um, thank you. I say this to every warrior, every chance I get. Thank you for being willing to sign up and to show up, especially at a time where the U.S. was virtually guaranteeing you, you will go to combat and you will get shot at and you were willing to volunteer to do that instead of having to be drafted. So, man, thank you for your oh, service you as well, country. sir. And I tell people, that's what makes America so special right now. We are an all-volunteer uh, sure army right now. The days of Vietnam and yeah. World War II are over where you were forced to win. Now you have guys that want to do the job. And that's why I'm so proud to be a part of that small group of people. Yeah, yeah. and I, I think for some people that are listening around the world, it's hard for them to understand just how deeply the attacks in the United States on September 11, 2001 impacted the whole country. Um, you know, most of the nation was shaken to their core because our country rarely ever gets attacked once or twice in the history of our nation. So um, I'm glad that you described what it felt like as a junior in high school, sitting there watching this happen on TV and saying, I'm going to do something, even if that means put my life on the line. So you join the army, you go off to the 214 Battalion, the Golden Dragons up in the 10th Mountain Division in Fort Drum, New York. And then you go to Iraq. Let's talk about your deployment to Iraq. Tell everybody what it was like, but also <laughs> let's let's focus in on how you ended up leaving Iraq. Yeah, so we we get the warning order and I believe it was around, I think maybe, oh man, maybe February, March, April-ish, I'm guessing. And the rumors were swirling, right. like, well, we're not going, we're going, we're going. And I remember our captain, uh, Shaw, was like, we're not going anywhere, fellas. We haven't heard anything. The next thing you know, the next night we get that warning order, and it just kind of clicked, like, <laughs> oh, my God, this is and real. Now we're going somewhere. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yep. it's real. Then we started going and getting our new uniforms, our desert combat uniforms, and I'm putting this stuff on. And then we're training, and I'm sitting there thinking, like, man, this is really happening. Like, I'm really getting ready to go to war. And I remember being at the RDF, the Rapid Deployment Center for Drum, as we're yep. getting ready to get on the plane, as I'm going up the plane, I see a general and he says, Dexter. I'm like, who's that knows my name? It was my buddy from high school. He dad. knows you by name. Yeah, it was General For Jess, real? General Byron Bagby. His son went into the Marine wow. Corps and fought. He was in the initial push. And I saw him. He's like, hey, you're going to be all right over there, man. And then as I remember getting on the plane, sitting wow. down, thinking, oh my God, this is it. And I remember when we touched down in Kuwait, like 18, 20 hours later, and that cabin door opened. And I just remember feeling that heat come inside the cabin yeah. and just breathe it in the hot air like 130 oh, man, degrees this is gonna yep. be rough. 130 degrees Fahrenheit <laughs> you know yep. and so we stayed in Kuwait for 30 days where we acclimated and got trained up and mm -hmm. uh I can't remember the name of the base but man then next thing you know we crossed the berm like 30 days later I remember mm -hmm. my sergeant in the headphone saying we're officially in Iraq boys and I just remember I was just tuned in and everybody we were joking and laughing before Nobody was laughing and joking now. You know, it was like, man, right. this is real. The IED threat's real. People want to kill us. And then we finally yeah. made it to Camp Victory where we ran operations out of there. And we were in the area of, uh, I think somewhere in West Baghdad for the first couple yeah. months. And I tell people like, it must've been like an intense trial of combat. That's what I was expecting. 
everybody thinks like when you're on combat every day is like your gunfight. No, man. The first couple months I was, we were driving around the country looking for trouble. And I just remember sitting in my, in the back of the Humvee one day, just playing with my rifle. And I'm just like, man, Auntie, like, man, when are we going to get to do something? Sergeant yeah, Pedro was with right? us. Sergeant Pedro fought in Operation Anaconda with the 101st. He was like, you really want to, wow. yeah. yeah. Oh, he was like, you really want to get into combat? He's like, do you know what it's like to see your friends die? Do you know what it's like to get shot at? He was like, you know right. what? I hope yeah. nothing happens. And I just remember yeah. that. That kind of struck me like, man, oh, well, yeah, he's got a point. But I, still, being a young soldier, you know, you do all this training. Yeah, everybody <laughs> wants to do their part. You yeah. want to do your part. You want to do what you're trained to do. And it, but it got real in August when the Bravo Company Barbarians from 214, uh -huh. they started taking casualties and they lost their first people. They lost private waters yeah. over the uh, over in uh, um, Solder City. And then they just started losing more and more and more people. And it was like, man, we know it's getting close. Like, it's real. Death is around here. People are dying now. Yeah. So it's not a game no more. And I just remember we they, the, them telling us, hey, well, we're getting ready to switch AOs. We're going to Abu Ghraib. And I don't know if you all remember, but Abu Ghraib was not a great oh, place no. for U.S. soldiers at that, 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 at that time because of the Abu Ghraib prison scandal that happened. Where yeah, pro right. troops were bruising prisoners. So when we got to Abu Ghraib, I could feel the shift in the atmosphere. And I still remember the first time I got shot at Abu Ghraib, sitting in the turret on the side of a road, just sitting there chilling, pulling security. And I just remember hearing that sonic zip. And man, my, yep. my heart skipped multiple beats. And I just ducked down behind the turret like, oh my God, we just got shot at. And then even worse was That's my right. first encounter with an IED. And just seeing my buddy's Humvee in front of me get blown up thinking, oh, my God, yeah. I just lost all my friends. But thank God they all lived. Yeah. Um, for people that are not familiar with combat, it's hard to describe. I usually use this phrase. It's moments of stark terror and months sometimes of total monotony. So <clears throat> nothing is going on day after day, week after week. And then when something happens... And like you described it, the first bullet, the first IED goes off, then it becomes stark terror. Most people, the first time they get shot at, it's a bit confusing and a little bit hard to um, uh, to to process because that's the moment that you realize, wait, these people really are trying to kill me. I mean, these these targets are shooting back at me. Um, but I love your language, Derek. You made it very clear. Most guys who go off to combat for the first time, the only thing that they know about combat is what they've heard from other veterans or what they've seen in video games. And when you go off and start to see people killed, that's the moment where it's not a video game. That's the moment where it gets real and it gets scary. Um, and for you, riding on a turret um, down a supply route in Iraq, it is deadly every second that you're mm -hmm. on those vehicles. So let's talk about, uh, you know, how that ended up for you in that fight. Because there's a lot of your story, man. Oh, I yeah. Still <laughs> yeah. So we, uh, the night of uh, January 2nd of 2005, we were in Abu Ghraib doing uh, route, route, route security, watching over the uh, route Huskies. And I remember mm -hmm. that night when we pulled up there, something felt off. The whole day felt off. Felt like somebody was watching me. And I just remember telling my lieutenant, man, I got a bad feeling. We shouldn't be here. And the fact we had already been there two days before. And he's like, man, just relax, relax, calm down. So I get out of the turret. Yeah. I go use the bathroom. And as I'm using the bathroom, I feel somebody watching me and the hairs on my neck are standing up. And I'm like, LT, wow. there's somebody here, man. Yeah. He's like, man, just hop in the, you know, you've been in the turret all day. 
get in the driver's seat, yeah. chill out, take your helmet off, relax, yo. So I'm sitting in the driver's seat, and the next thing you know, it's it's weird almost because I almost remember it in two parts. One part I remember waking uh-huh. up in the Humvee. It was almost like an outer body experience, and I just remember it's just yeah. like in the movies. You hear the ringing in the ears, and everything's moving in slow motion, mm-hmm. and then your mind starts to catch up, and your senses start to catch up and process everything, and the pain started shooting through my body, and I'm like, oh, my God, what's happening to me? And then I realized, like, oh, my God, we've been hit. And I remember my lieutenant, like, man, your door's wrecked. I'm going to get you out. He pulls me out of the Humvee through the passenger side door. My body hits the ground, and I start screaming and yelling to the sky. Man, my Uh left arm is completely shattered. I took a hit to the head. My back and hips are blown out of, like, socket and alignment, and pain is just there. And I I remember the taste of blood and dirt in my mouth because all my, like, my molars are cracked in half. And I'm just thinking, oh, my God, I'm about to die. And I'm sitting here looking right. at the sky in Iraq, 20 years old, thinking, man, I, I wanted this, but I don't want to die. And But thank right. God, God spared my life that day. These guys, they got me, put me in a splint, got me to the uh, the combat support hospital in Abu Ghraib, or she's mm-hmm. been in uh, Baghdad. And I was able to get flown home and flown to Germany, then flown to Walter Reed, where I spent you know, uh, six months recovering, trying to get my arm to heal up. Yeah. And that eventually ended my Army career. Yeah. It's, uh, I think it's difficult. A lot of guys and gals from combat have described what you just said, Dexter. They have this, something's not right, and I can't put my finger on what's not right, and I got a really bad feeling, but I got no way of backing up this bad feeling. And a lot of them had that same experience as you before the big fight or before all of the action it's hard to describe that to people because there's no real tangible thing that you can point to. Just something doesn't feel right. Yeah. And uh, lots of people have gone through that experience. When you got blown up, it could have easily cost you your arm or cost you your life. And that Humvee, you know, it didn't have a lot of protection, but at least it had enough, enough protection that you didn't take the full force of the blast. Because you were no longer on the top of the Humvee on the turret, you're in the driver's seat now so that you could take a little bit of a break. And that probably saved your life, man. Absolutely did. Yeah, so you go through a long, hard road to recovery. And by the way, Dexter, thank you for sending me your book, um, I Am Pitts. I just finished it last night, and I love the way you describe what that what that time at Walter Reed Army Medical Center was like. This is the U.S. Army's premier medical facilities, and it's got a lot of uh, bandaged up and beat up uh, guys and gals there. But I think you have described better than anybody I've ever heard what it was like to recover and what that physical therapy department was like there. So can you talk a little bit about that long road to getting healthy again? Yeah, man. I, I tell people getting hurt in the combat is one thing, but recovering is a whole nother. Like you, like. <laughs> and it's probably harder, It's right? way harder. My my therapist, Steve, God bless the dude, but he was the devil to me. I would see Steve coming and I knew torture and pain were coming because my left yeah. arm, as people can see, was, you know, I got this scar. My arm is, left yeah. arm is stuck yeah. at a 90 degree angle. And so he was like, we're going to get, I'm going to get you back. I'm going to get you back, man. We're going to get you better. And he would take me out into the stores in the city in Bethesda, and he'd be like, hey, mm-hmm. pick up that can of sodas, man. I would try to pick up my right arm. He'd be like, no, 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 your left arm. <laughs> I mean, I would just be That's covered right. in sweat. I mean, he pushed me to my limit every day. And the worst thing yeah. was, like, not feeling like a soldier because I couldn't do my job. He right. would bring me an, yeah. an, an M4 rifle 
he'd be like, disassemble it, put it back together. And I would do it over and over and over. And eventually right. I got the feeling back on my left hand and my left arm, but my arm was pretty much stuck in a 90 degree angle. But because yeah. of Steve, I'm able to have the life that I have today. And even better, you know who Tammy Duckworth is? She's a- um, uh, I know the name. Yeah, yeah. She, I used to see, she was. I was in therapy with her all the time. She's uh-huh. the, uh, I believe she's a senator in uh, Illinois, I believe. Yeah. She lost her legs mm-hmm. in a Black Hawk accident, man. I used to see, right. I was so encouraged and motivated by the men and women around me that were so focused that lost their limbs for this country and they were still focused yeah. on trying to get back to the battlefield. Right. How amazing is that? She was the one who quoted and wrote a book titled Every Day is a Gift. And it was a reminder after losing her legs over there that, look, the fact that I'm still alive today is a gift and I'm not going to take this gift for granted. Um, as you know, I've been to Walter Reed. I've seen what that uh, you know place looked like. And Steve, if it wasn't for him being tough enough on you to make you pick that can up, with your left arm instead of using your mm-hmm. right arm. Maybe you don't have the quality of life. Maybe you don't go on to do the things that you did later on, but everybody needs a guy like Steve in your life when life just got difficult and you would like to take the easy path and just, you know, um, not have to deal with the pain of getting healthy again. So big shout out to Steve. There's a couple of parts of your story, man, that I am really, really impressed with. And what I'm also impressed with is how you handled this as a man, as a husband, uh, you know, as a, a son. So can you describe for just a little bit what's going on with your family as you get wounded, sent back to the United States and go through this whole recovery process? Uh, the biggest thing I tell people for me is I have lost my identity as a soldier. You know, for years, yeah. you know, I've been training to be this, this infantry guy, you know, this combat killer, just wanting to kill people. And all of a sudden, you can't even wipe your own butt. You can't change yourself. Uh-huh. And you start to look at yourself different. And I remember looking at my wife at the time thinking, she's not going to want me and be with me. Like, I can't even take care of myself. And the yeah. mental, it's that's the start of the mental games in your head. And man, and for me, my mom knew something was wrong. Like, she called me on the phone and I'd be like, no, what? What do you want? She'd be like, Dexter, I did not raise you that way. You don't ever talk to me. That's right. All right, mama. That's right. (laughs) So mama bear comes out, yo, and then she just, she comes in Mm -hmm. hard, then she comes in soft, like, baby, you've been through so much. Like, I understand you're tired and you're sad. And for me, man, I I finally broke down and started crying on the phone. I had not cried in years. Dropped a single tear. Yeah. And the next thing you know, I'm crying, and my my mom hangs up the phone, and I fall asleep. And then I remember I'm sitting in my hospital bed, and then I have this, feeling of peace and security comes over me. And I look up and it's my mom. She's in the hospital bed with me. She got a late night flight and flew to Walter Reed wow. to be with me Man. and comfort me. And that was the best I had felt in so yeah. long. And that there gave me the push and the drive to get yeah. up the next day and just kind of you know, start facing my demons at that point. And having a, right. and I tell people, man, I'm a Christian man. My mother was a Christian woman. Having a praying mother in this world probably the most vital thing I've ever had in my life. Absolutely. hundred percent agree with you, man. And, and I, uh, the fact that you honored your mother in this book and the way that you talked about how much of a difference she made, let's be honest, you could easily withdraw inside, get angry at the world, get angry at everybody around you after this injury. And your mama helped to draw you back out and helped you, you know, 
integrate back into society. And I would say, man, based on what you do next, your mama did a really, <laughs> really good job with it. So tell everybody what happens after you leave the military. You're banged up and you don't have to go do this, but what do you go do next? I start looking around. I'm like, what am I going to do with my lifestyle? I'm not a soldier. I'm like, I'm going to be an occupational therapist. I went and sat in with the occupational therapy session. It was horrible. I thought, I'm going to do business. This is boring. <laughs> and I'm like, where do you go? You can't go from combat to a cubicle. And I'm sitting on the couch one day right. and I see a commercial for the Louisville Metro Police Department. I'm like, man, it looks kind of interesting, kind of fun. And and then I remember calling them up and I went on a ride along and I just remember sitting at the roll call table with the cops. It was just like the military, man. These guys, you know, they got All the right. shiny gear on and yep. everything's dressed right uh -huh. dressed. And I was like, hey, these are my people. This is what I'm going to do. Right. They, I hear you. And I remember telling my yep. mom, I think I'm going to be a police officer. She was like, oh, no, oh, no, you're not. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> She's like, <laughs> you've already been blown up and shot at. No need to keep doing that. Right. She always used to say, what are you going to do if somebody get a hold of that left arm? And, and so I told her, like, well. I was looking to become a federal agent. So, you know, I decided looking right. into like the DEA, FBI, U.S. Marshals. Mm -hmm. and but, you know, I, I get divorced at that time and I meet another girl that's local and we end up getting married. And I told her she didn't want to leave. I was like, well, I just become a local cop. The next thing you know, I signed up for the Louisville Metro Police Department. I submit my application. I go through the process. And as I'm taking my physical, they're like, hey, you got to interlock your hands behind your head for these sit ups. Or you're not going to pass. And they, they're like, well. And you're like, that's a problem I, for I a guy who can't move yeah. his arm from 90 degrees. Yeah, and they, yeah. And they told me, they were like, well, we'll let you do the test, but we're not sure you're going to be able to make it. So I do the test and pass everything. And then I get word a couple days later that, hey, you know, the board of cert, though, that certifies you, they're going to let you go through the process, man. Wow. It, yeah. it was only God. And I'll tell you, from the moment I got into the academy to the moment I hit the streets, I knew that my purpose in life was being a police officer. Yeah, not a lot of people can just get up tomorrow morning and know what their purpose in life is, let alone go after it. But Dexter, man, I'm so proud of you for not sitting around on the couch, wallowing in self-pity, complaining about the injuries and feeling like less of a man. You decided I'm going to do something with the rest of my life. And I have the greatest respect having worked there for years for the LMPD, the Louisville Metro Police Department. Um, man, you do that. You do it really well, but um, you take service to the next level <laughs> by going to the Arizona border. So let's talk about what life was like for you on the border during uh, years of this immigrant crisis that our country's been through. Yeah. So I was with the Louisville Metro Police Department from 2009 until October of 2018. I didn't hate being a cop. I loved it. Yo, but me uh -huh. joining was originally I wanted to be a federal agent. Yeah. And so I was on the U.S. Marshals Task Force for two years when I was a cop. And I was like, man, I really want to keep doing police work, but on a federal level. And I saw the Border Patrol yeah. as the closest thing to being a cop on the federal uh -huh. level. And so I signed up. Uh, I think I failed the test originally in like 2016 for the Border Patrol. Didn't make it. Took it again. Didn't make it. And then President Trump gets in office and says, hey, if you're military and you're current law enforcement, you don't have to take this stupid test. Right. I was like, God, this All is right. a sign from heaven. I'm going to be a That's federal right. agent. Yep. And so I get hired by the Border Patrol in uh, October 2018, and I get to the Border Patrol Academy. And let me tell you, brother, that was the hardest training I have ever undergone, especially as wow. an older person. Yeah. I was like 35. Yeah. And these injuries, man, I got my butt kicked every day, mentally, physically, emotionally. It was the hardest training I've ever done. I really go back to Army OSET, OSET training. 
infantry uh-huh. because I got pushed to the max every day, but I finally graduated and made it out and I made it to the border and I was out in the field and I liked it and I enjoyed it, but it wasn't what I thought. And the one thing yeah. chasing illegals in the desert was cool. It was fun. I mean, but then I'm a big boy and the cardio in the mountains was not there for me. <laughs> chasing these, oh, oh, it man, was miserable. I, just, I didn't make that connection <laughs> until just now. Yep. Yeah. It, oh, man, it was miserable, but I enjoyed it. But also at the same time, I was missing the connection I had making with people in the community when I was yeah. on duty. And I was like, man, it's fun. It's a great job. I'm not making good money, but I was miserable because I became a cop to make a difference in people's lives, you know, and, yeah. it, and I wasn't making a difference in people's lives. Like I was as a cop, right. you know, don't get me wrong. I was getting a lot yeah. of money on being a federal agent as GS nine, uh-huh. but I was just like, this is a, this isn't what I thought it would be. Right. Yeah. So you stick around and do that for just a little while and then you return back to Louisville, right? What happens next? So when I, at the time I decided I was going back to Louisville, I'm sure everybody in the country knows in 2020 what happened. Two major incidents. It, there was, it was a, a perfect yeah. storm of you had the George Floyd incident and then uh-huh. you had the Breonna Taylor incident and then you had COVID mm-hmm. at the same time. So you have these three variables going on and the country's unstable and people hate police. And I decided at that point in time when I was in Arizona watching Louisville get torn apart by rioters and protesters because yeah. I was on the riot team and I was like, uh-uh, now, not without yeah. me. And I made the decision. I called. I was like, I want back in. I want in now. When At a time in police policing, especially in Louisville, when everybody was trying to get out, nobody wanted to deal That's with right. the riots. I was like, no, mm-hmm. I'm going back. Put me on the front line. Let me go do my job. And I swore back into the Louisville Metro Police Department on June 15th, 2020, in the middle of the riots. And let me tell you, brother. Wow. That time frame, man, I was probably more afraid on the streets of Louisville than I was in Iraq. Because in Iraq, yeah. I got bombs. You got helicopters. You got machine guns. You kind of know who the enemy is, but when you're a cop in the street yeah, of America, right. the American people are not your enemy. But there are people there who want to hurt you and kill you. Yeah. We got oh, shot yeah. at. I mean, I had my life threatened, my family's life threatened. People followed us to our homes and houses. I tell people I would leave after the riots. I would get in my car and drive on the interstate with my lights blacked out to make sure nobody was wow. following me. And then I would park maybe a quarter mile away from my house and walk uh-huh. to where I live. In case there was somebody still following me. It was an intense time, man. Dexter, you served the military with distinction. You served in Louisville Metro Police with distinction. You served on the border as a federal law enforcement officer with distinction. Then you go back to Louisville. And what I want to do with the rest of this episode is I want you to try to walk us through what it was like as an African-American in the middle of this powder keg um, of racial conflict in the United States. And the epicenter of it for a period of time was Louisville. Everybody in America was watching what was happening in Louisville. And you're uniquely uh, positioned to describe this. But I also want to tell people, man, When I read your book, you do such a good job of being very open about what people, how people treated you just because of the color of your skin. And I mean, in all walks of life, before the military, in the military, out of the military, even as a police officer on the street. So, man, let's just, let's just camp here for a few minutes. Would you describe what this was like? getting back into Louisville at a time where the entire nation was at this volatile point 
because of what happened with Breonna Taylor. So I remember driving into Louisville from the, from Arizona. I got off 64, went downtown, and it was like a war zone where you knew what you were going to get. Hey, I'm going to stop you for just a second, man, because I it just occurred to me, there's some people listening from around the world. They don't recognize the name Breonna Taylor. They don't know what's happening in Louisville. Can you give them like the 32nd version of why Breonna Taylor's death caused such widespread outrage yeah. all over America? Yeah, so people don't know, Breonna Taylor is a black female here in Louisville. Her and her boyfriend, I believe it's Kenneth Walker. I always get the names mixed up. Kenneth Walker, the... Uh, LMPD narcotics division was doing an investigation into drug dealing at their mm -hmm. house. And they had set up these warrants to go set, knock down the, take down these drug houses at different locations in Louisville. So officers get there, knock on the door and they yell police, but there's a shot that's fired from inside the residence and an officer, mm -hmm. my friend, John Madeline gets shot. And once that shot's fired, officers start firing into the apartment and Brianna Taylor is shot and killed by Louisville Metro police officers. And so officers retreat out, and the next thing you know, people are like, man, they had the wrong house. The rumor started, oh, she was shot and killed mm -hmm. in her bed for no reason, but that was all false. And so you got this happening on the back of uh, George Floyd. And so the nation yeah. is in a frenzy. And then all of a sudden, right. police become public enemy number one because of these two incidences. And because the media is just taking these falsehoods and spinning them up as truths. Yeah. And not even the, the false, like just half, half truths and just right. letting them run rampant, man. So. Louisville was literally a war zone because I remember getting off the interstate when yeah, I came back in Louisville and I, there was not a soul downtown. Boarded up buildings, graffiti, yeah. and it, I was just like, man, it was so eerie. And then I remember my first day on the riots, on the lines, and a, this giant black protester came up to me and he's looking at me like, you're a traitor. How dare you wear that uniform before me? Like, yeah. who, who do you think yeah. you are? And I remember him telling me, he was like, if you're really with us, black man, take a knee. Take a knee with us, bow. And I'm like, I don't take a knee before anybody. But I told him I'll pray with you. And I prayed with them right there. And so that kind of right. that kind of made the news, yo. But that was just one incident. And I mean, it was never ending. Uncle Tom, sell out. You coon, you know, yeah. you coon. And I was just like, man, but I had been through so much in my point at that point in time in my life. Those words didn't penetrate me because I knew who I was and I knew what I was standing for. Yeah. And at this point in time in America with social media, people are wanting you to choose a side. Oh yeah. It's like, are you a Republican? Are you a cop? Are you black or conservative? Are you with us or against us? And I'm just like, man, I'm here for what's right. I'm here for what's wrong. And I'm here yeah. so that you all right. can protest because protesting is not illegal in America. That is right. your first right. amendment right. But what you don't have the right to do is sit here and threaten my family and my friends and tell us you're going to kill us. Yeah. You know, we've had people telling officers they're going to rape their daughters and murder their families. And, it, and then wow. as a black officer, you're caught in the middle. And then there, it happened on the PD where we had an incident with officers, black officers and white officers, kind of there, this divide started to show on the police department. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, this divide happened everywhere. It happened in my church. There were people I went to church with, wow. Mr. Struker, that came up to me and said some horrible things to me, pointed me out on videos, told people where I lived, people I used to pray wow. with and work with, all because, not the color of my skin, because of the uniform I wore and yeah. what I represented. Yeah. Yeah. So for most of America's history, the average person had the greatest respect for a police officer. Right after George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, there was a well, there was a huge shift in public opinion. And all of a sudden, many people didn't want the police, didn't like the police. That's when cities started talking about defunding, defunding the police. We don't need police anymore, which I think was absolutely insane. Crazy. 
But I want the listener to hear what you just said. This for you is not something that's happening um, outside in, you know, uh, this is people that you know and the police officers that you're friends with that are involved in this thing and a city like you that are like me that you love and you're watching all of this happen. But in your case, because you're African-American and you're a police officer, you're pulled in two directions. You have people that hate the police and don't want to see you serving on the police force. You have people that are just blatantly prejudiced because of the color of your skin. And I want the listener to hear how impossible this situation becomes for you and not just for you, but for a lot of people in the same, in the same situation, man. I'm going to say it wasn't impossible for me, but I'll say this. The one thing I loved about the police department, is the same thing I loved about the military. When I was on the ground in Abu Ghraib on January 2nd, 2005, and I thought I was losing my life. I did not yeah. care what the color of the men were in uniform right. that were coming to my rescue. I just wanted an American. I wanted my brothers. My yeah. brothers are black, white, Asian, Hispanic, you name it. Atheists, mm-hmm. Christians, you know, Jewish. I got brothers, of, right. of sisters of all different flavors, man. And, you know, and that was the one thing <laughs> yep. that I, and when I was in Louisville during this time during the riots, where I was like, I am so proud to be standing next to these guys because while the rest of the world is falling apart, the rest of the country dividing on color, a lot of us were just banding together. as like, yeah. bro, we, yeah. they're saying that we're all racist and we're just sitting there like, bro, me and my best friend, the white guy, he was 82nd Airborne, me and him just joined up like, all right. Like, that's my dude, man. Like, that's my brother. And the, everybody's falling yeah. apart and everybody's wanting to rip that apart. And, you know, united we stand, divided we fall. The only reason we made it through that time as a department, especially in the smaller groups during this riot time, is because we banded together to look after, for, look after one another. And it's so crazy where we're at in this point in America where we've gotten so far from Martin Luther King's judging somebody by the content of their character. Yeah. And not the color of their right. skin to where we're going back the complete mm-hmm. opposite way. But that is why I decided to come back and stay a police officer because somebody has to yeah. be here to set the example. Somebody has to do it. And people are still quitting this job every day. And I understand and I don't blame them, yeah. but I'm not going anywhere because I know that this is my purpose. And, you know, the Constitution means something to me and my fellow American people, whether they like me or not, whether they want to cuss me out For or not. Right. Hey, right. I'm okay with you getting in my face as an officer and saying, I hate you and what you stand for. That yeah. is your right. And I almost yeah. died for that right. And I will continue to do so. For the gunslingers, the gunfighters, as your shirt says, for the guys <laughs> and gals in uniform in the military or law enforcement, there's always been people out there that are going to hate you for who you are and what you stand for. And there's nothing you can do to change their opinion. But you've already mentioned, man, for you, this isn't a one-time event you've kind of lived through this from childhood in the military. And now you're at the epicenter of it in Louisville while it's going on. Um, And you've handled yourself with dignity and with respect, man, and um, showed yourself a man worthy of honor, even when you could have, you know, got, got into the middle of throwing racial slurs and, you know, everything else, man, I, I, I have so much respect for, the way that you handled yourself. You know, I tell it's it's not about me. I tell people when I'm in that uniform that everything I do and says matters. And it's not a reflection on me. It's a reflection on that uniform right. and that department. And I was like, the last thing I ever wanted to do was make this profession look bad or shame the people I worked for. 
Yeah. And that's what makes law enforcement such a noble profession. That and the brotherhood um, and the sisterhood, the camaraderie that you just described. And outside of the military, I'm not sure that I've seen that kind of deep camaraderie anywhere else except law enforcement. Um, would you describe for people what's going on um, now, what you're doing now and where you're serving? So I ended up actually leaving the Louisville Metro Police Department this past November because mm-hmm. I still love that place. I tell people they want to work there. I'll put in a word for you, but it, things got so right. political. And so and it's just it's it wasn't the same police department I left when I came back. So I'm right. now with a smaller yeah. police department still within Louisville. Yeah, but I'm with some older officers that I used to work with and great guys and girls. And man, I am right. still serving, brother. I am I am all in it. I you know I wear my uniform. I go to work proudly. And I tell people the best part now is I make more money and have less stress where I'm at. <laughs> no, it's not as busy. <laughs> yeah. What, what, what more could you ask for? I got the winning more combo. Money, same job, more money, less stress. <laughs> Who wouldn't take that job offer? Who wouldn't take that offer right yeah, there? So, you know, I do that. And when I'm not doing that, I'm working extra. We're big Dave Ramsey people, so I'm trying to pay off some debts. Yeah. I'm doing that and right. taking care of my family. Okay. I got a, you know, a, yeah. a seven-year-old son and a nine-year-old daughter, a beautiful wife. Yeah. You know, And I tell people for mm-hmm. years, I put my family on the back burner. But now that I'm out of LMPD and I have this better, I'm in a better position, I'm able to put yeah. focus on my family a lot more. And I'm working on my, I do my podcast, the Iron Pits podcast. And actually, All I'm right. going to tell you, I just got the inspiration for my next book. It just hit me and I, it is in its infancy. What? So yeah, Come I on. said I was only going to write one book because that one took me seven and it, and I have to peel back yeah. some emotional scars and scabs and it was raw, yeah. but man, this next one, I was like, it's not going to take me seven years, but I got the idea that's in my head and I've already started putting pen to paper. All right. Yeah. Well, um, so just to go back to what you're doing right now, man, I, I want to, like I said earlier, thanks for serving the country. Thank you for serving your community. Um, I really am impressed by the way that you continue to serve. You could be sitting on the couch right now feeling sorry for yourself with your arm all all beat up, but you didn't let that hold you back. I mean, you really are unbeatable, Derek. But the book that you wrote, and and I'm just going to tell the listeners, man, go out and get this book. Um, Pick up a copy of it because he just described it well, man. You are raw. You're honest. You don't hide your emotions and you also don't hide your failings. You don't try to look like a, uh, you know, uh, like you're perfect or that you've got it all figured out right there. So (laughs) tell people what prompted you to start to write a book, because you just said it was a seven year process and a lot of hard work. Why did you start it? What kept you going? So in 2015, after the Michael Brown incident in Ferguson, Missouri, I'm sure you all remember Officer Darrell Wilson Mm -hmm. incident. Shot and killed Mike Brown and the riots. That was my first time seeing riots. And I remember I was so on Facebook and engaged on social media. Then I'm just arguing with people all day back and forth while the police are good. And, you know, we got to do this and that. And I was just like getting worn out trying to explain to people why me as a black man, why I'm a conservative or why I love America yeah. when everybody's telling me not to. And I was like, man, I'm not right. going to sit here and argue with people. Like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to just start writing a book. So I remember I was working at a side job. At Taco Bell at First and Broadway, just sitting there. Taco Bell, yeah, just homeless right. people walking by, and I'm just sitting there typing away. You know, just and I was just type, 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 and type. And man, and as I was typing over the years, I realized that the tone of my book at that time was was harsh, and it was not one of love. You know, I was I was putting targets on people, and I was typing out of anger. And I was like, if I do that, 
I'm not gonna I'm not gonna make a change in this world that's positive. I'm right. just gonna be spreading more hate. And so the book started to shift towards me telling people who I am, what I believed, and what I was. And but really, yeah. what really changed it was when when my son was born, and I was looking at my kids, and I remember I was like, I know my father, but I don't really know my father that well. Right. And he's in my life, mm-hmm. my whole life. But there's just so many questions I have. I was like, I don't want my kids to have any questions about who I am, what I believe, and what we stand for, and how I got to be this person. And so that was kind of the catalyst that really pushed me to start finishing the book. But what really pushed me to finish the book and publish it in 2022 was the 2020 riots and 2021 riots. Yeah. Because when we the night we got shot at after the Breonna Taylor verdict and two of my fellow officers got gunned down in front uh-huh. of me, I went home that night and I told my wife, if I die, my story dies with me. And I don't want nobody else being able to tell my story. I want my yeah. kids to know who I am from my perspective, not the world's perspective. And who right. better to tell my story than me? And man, it, I tell it took seven years because there's so many things, like a lot of people don't know, the, the suicide, my mom's suicide, while I was on duty mm-hmm. as a police officer, a right. young officer. Yeah. I took my mom off life support while wearing my police uniform. Yeah. And I tell people that story is so raw, so real, and it hurts. And when I got to it, my mind shut down. You know, my mind completely shut down yeah. and did not want to revisit it. It took me months to get past that barrier to where I could write about it. And so I would just get to these parts and I would just keep writing and keep writing and keep pushing and keep writing. And then the next thing you know, boom, it's done. I'm, I'm a published author. Yeah. <laughs> so All right. And not only that, but you just described it well. You've got a story now for your children and generations that come after them to look back on who you are as a man and what made you tick. And you described that really well in the book, I Am Pitts. Um, I I want to kind of go back to something you said a minute ago, man. And uh, I'd like to uh, wrap this episode up here. You're working at a Taco Bell as a part-time job trying to make a little bit more money because let's be honest, the average law enforcement officer in the United States doesn't make a lot of money. Many of them are just barely getting by. And most of them that I know have to work a second job. You get, uh, we're, we're asking you to put your life on the line every day that you put your uniform on, but we don't pay you enough to even really take care of your family. So you're working a part-time job at Taco Bell, writing a book, and you're in the middle of this polarization of America. Now, I'm going to put you on the spot, man. And I'm not going to um, I'm not going to um, set you up here. But I just want people to hear, man, you have described well for the listeners in this episode what's currently happening in the United States. And you use this phrase, divided we fall. So when you are in the middle of those race riots, and I don't know a better term for this, when you're in the middle of the nation being torn, the fabric of our country being torn apart, people are pressuring you to choose a side and to pick a team and to basically, uh, you know, either you're with us or you're against us. But you, you resisted that and you resisted that very well. You described how you resisted that in the book. I want you to discuss discuss uh, with the listener for just a few minutes how hard that was for you, because it's hard for me and anybody else who wants to stand for what's right instead of standing for what's on the nightly news tonight and for what's, uh, you know, right now on the headlines. And then tomorrow, something totally different on the headlines, and you're supposed to stand for that, too. So 
Tell everybody why you were able to stand your ground, hold your convictions, and not become part of the problem, but to help become part of the solution. So a lot of people don't know, but if you read my book, you know, at one point in time, after I got out of the military, I was looking for a tribe. And I got hooked up with yeah. James Gandolfini from H, uh, the, the Tony Soprano, and I did a documentary, mm-hmm. and I went to Italy with Spike Lee, the act, the fame, the fame director. And so I got in with yeah. these guys, and I tell people, I be, at one point in time, I was becoming a black separatist, a black extremist, because my mind was so open, and I was wanting a tribe. I needed another group of guys, because I didn't have my army guys. Yeah. And right. so I started going down this road of, you know, we didn't land on Plymouth Rock. Plymouth Rock landed on us, you know. And so, and the thing is, I was never right. raised that way. My grandparents grew up in, my family grew up in Mississippi picking cotton. But I was never raised mm-hmm. to be a victim. And all of a sudden, I started becoming this all victim right. through, like in my later years of my life. And I'm just like, what is this really getting me? And I, I kept talking about the white boogeyman. And I'm like, the dudes I know that were white, they saved my life. And I'm like, so all this stuff we're seeing on the news about evil white people and you know bad black people, and I'm just like, that's never been my lived experience. But for some odd reason in, this, in the world today, we love to take on other people's perceived struggles and other people's right. lives that never happened to us. I was never a victim of slavery or like extreme racism. I've dealt with it, but I was never a victim of it. You know, so I just started looking at my life or what it was the people that have been there and the people that have been around me. And I'm like, yeah, it's not fair to me to be mean to somebody or judge somebody based off of somebody else's perception of that person. Mm-hmm. And the thing is with social media, Mr. Struker, social media, we, man, it, it, it's a great thing, but also it is a horrible thing. People get into these, yeah. you know, these groups in there and they're just echo chambers, man. And I was living in an echo yeah. chamber at one point in time. And I was like, I don't want to be an echo chamber. And the hardest thing, one of the hardest things I ever had to do was stand up and say, my name is Dexter Pitts. I'm black. No, I'm a conservative. And I love America. Because the moment you do that and you step outside of the crowd and you say, hey. You're going to get criticized. You're going to get criticized by everybody. You know? And the more I yeah. got criticized, the stronger I got. And what made me stand firm was my belief in Jesus Christ and, my, and standing on the word yeah. of God, that there are just some things in this life that are inevitably true. And I took right. what my mother put me and my father put me and I decided, you know what? These are what I stand for. And this is how I'm going to raise my family. You know, as for me and my house, we shall serve the Lord. And so everything right. I've done and I do, I love that I, Bible. I, yes, sir, I try yep. to do for the man upstairs. I'm not perfect. Yo, but I was like, the, the, the life I'm living, is it a life that's going to make him proud and make him say, well done, thy good and faithful servant. And you know what? I tell people, God, the Bible says, go and be fisher of men. It does not say go and be fisher of black men, white men, Hispanic men. That's right. Yeah. It just says men yeah. and men and women come of different right. colors. And so the yeah. one thing I wanted from my book with people to take away is you have to be comfortable being yourself in a world in which the pool is so strong to just blend in with the crowd. And the thing is, right. I see people now with purple hair and different color hair. Everybody wants to be so different. And I'm like, you don't have uh-huh. to try to be different because you already are. Nobody else in the right. world has your DNA. God only made one of you. And even if you've got a twin, your DNA is still different. You are unique. That's right. Go on. And, no, and so yep. for me, it was the fact that I don't, I want to set an example for people around me that knew me, that even if people don't agree with me in my politics and how I see things, I want them to be able to say, he's a good man. He's a good dude yeah. at the end of the day. And I want it. I want that to be 
you know, for my children, I want them to see how I live. Not just see, not, not the things I say, but see how I live daily and yeah. how I treat people that can't do anything for me and how I sacrifice for people who can never do anything for me because that is the right thing to right. do and that is what God yeah. would want us to do. Yeah, Dexter, I ask you this question because you describe it in your book. Your life has lived this out. It's good. It's noble to be who you are and to stand your ground. But everyone in, a, in the world today, especially in the Western developed countries, is being pulled on to, to choose sides, being pulled into a direction. And people are asking you to, you know, define yourself by what you stand against and the people that you hate and, 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 and uh, those things. And, and unfortunately, what that does is just rip away at the things that unite us. And all we talk about is what divides us anymore. And man, in your book, you have every right, if anybody out there has the ability to talk about what's been done to you and how it's been done to you, you can, but you choose not to. And you talk about what's um, what makes you tick and what you stand for. And then just let other people, you know, see who you are. And man, I, I just got to tell you, your book, just your life, your life and your book is inspiring, man. And I want people to, yeah, I want more people to know about you. So let's say they want to get a copy of the book or they want to learn about the podcast or they just want to know more about you, man. Where do they go? How do they find out more? So, uh, I'm on social media. I tell people I can't stand social media, but I understand I have to have a presence. But I'm on yeah, uh, Instagram yeah. at I am Pitts, the number one. I am Pitts one. I have uh, the uh, I am Pitts Memoirs of American Patriot Facebook page. And also have my website, iampits.com, where you can go and purchase a copy of the book. And I tell people, I'm an accessible guy. I love people, which is why I'm a cop. I I can't, I love people. Even the bad ones, man, like, I love God's people, man. That's why I'm here. I'm, 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 right. I'm trying to be, I'm a shepherd yeah. of the flock, man. And yeah. so I, you right. can reach me on email. I don't care who you are, questions, got military, law enforcement, and you're dealing with PTSD, but I deal with it. Hit me up, man, at iampits at yahoo.com. Yeah. I I love being able to reach and contact people, man. I really do. And that's one thing I also mentioned in the book is the only way America is going to learn to move forward from where we are is forgiveness. We got to stop holding yeah. on to the chains of yesterday right. and all the things that yeah, happened. Absolutely. Slavery and all these things, man. Yes, they were horrible. But guess what? Forgiveness is our most strongest and powerful weapon. Yeah. Resentment is only going to hold us back. And all of the people that made the biggest impact in the world came to the same realization that you did, Derek, that the thing that's going to move society, make people better in the future, make people's lives better, is learning to forgive what's happened to you in the past, as horrible as it might be. For anybody who was listening and you missed all of those places, you can find them. We're going to put the links to all of those in the notes to this episode. So just check out the notes and you'll have the links to his social media and his website and all of that. But man, let me tell you again, as a warrior, as a law enforcement officer, and just as a man who tries to represent God well in your community, thank you, Dexter, for who you are and for what you stand for. And thanks for being on this episode with me. I appreciate you. So I got to tell you, you and your Ranger, Ranger brothers are my heroes. I have, man, y'all, man, I can't say enough about you guys, man. They all, y'all, all right, y'all led the charge the for me, man. Y'all laid the groundwork. The, the feeling is mutual <laughs> for you, man. So thank you. I appreciate you, Mr. Struker. One of the reasons why Dexter could stand in some incredibly challenging circumstances is because he knows who he is and he understands what he stands for. He is a man who understands his identity. 
And that's one of the things that makes Dexter unbeatable. I hope you were inspired by something that you heard from him today. And I just want to say thank you to everybody who tunes in regularly and listens to this podcast. If you came across our podcast for the first time, why don't you go ahead and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform? And if you're not already doing it, why don't you go ahead and follow us on social media? There are thousands, several thousand people that are following us out there and some amazing people like our fan of the week this week, Jim Winters. Jim, thank you for being so faithful. Thank you for staying connected to this podcast on social media. Thank you, Jim, for being part of the Unbeatable Army. If you are just trying to figure this out for the first time, the Unbeatable Army is a list of people that get connected and I send content to them all week long. Not just podcast episodes, but deliver content directly to them. It's totally free. If you want to become part of the Unbeatable Army, all you got to do to sign up is go over to unbeatablearmy.com. Thanks for joining me for this episode. And I'll see you right back here next week. God bless. Thank you.